0: you should probably spend just as much time warming up as you do doing the session so i'm 44 somewhat fit but got some orthopedic issues i will spend 15 to 20 minutes warming up for a 15 minutes stack session but every one of those reps needs to be high quality and if you get you know half your reps done and you're not warm and they're not at a sufficient level of speed you're not going to see the see the benefit
1: This is the Tournament Code. I appreciate you taking the time to join us, Sasho. We know a lot about you, heard a lot about you. You've done a lot of different things from biomechanics perspective, from a golf training perspective. But before we kind of get to that, let's kind of start from the beginning and tell us just how you got into the game of golf.
0: Well, I uh, played it a lot as a kid, mostly as a hobby sport. I, you know, I was always big into other sports. Played a lot of Soccer, growing up, track and field, hockey, volleyball, and it was more, you know, like my parents would drop me off in the course in the morning, pick me up in the evening. But it was more like fishing. You know, I fished a lot as a kid as well. It wasn't something that I did competitively necessarily. And you know, going through university, I did track and volleyball university, so still big into sports, but also found a passion for math and physics and engineering. So, kind of combined those with my uh, graduate work, and ended up doing a PhD on customizing shaft stiffness to uh, a golfer's swing. And then started, you know, as kind of graduate university, s- still have some competitive needs, you know. So started looking towards golf to satisfy those, and and, and what a great outlet. So started working on my own game. Started thinking more about uh, ways to optimize performance in general. And that kind of, you know, that's what I started doing my research on as a professor, started some businesses around it, you know, uh, educating instructors. And really, um, even though my, my educational backgrounds in biomechanics, I've kind of, if there's something related to golf science and a question that needs to be answered in terms of optimizing performance lowering golf scores, I'm interested.
1: So you got into golf like competitively. It sounds like a little later, but I know you're a pretty solid player. Tell us about what your progression has been like as just a golfer playing, and then we'll talk a little bit more about your other endeavors.
0: Sure. So you know, I was uh, in high school would would have been low 80s would have been a, a good score for me, and then started getting around a scratch in university and in grad school, but didn't become you know, plus handicap till much later in life till I was in my early 40s, you know, so it was kind of a a steady progression. And, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't claim to be an amazing golfer, but I'm sitting at a a plus two right now, won my club championship a couple of times, you know, so I, I, you know, I have a reasonably good perspective in the grand scheme of things. I'm a very good golfer, but I also happen to hang around a lot of Tour players, so I realized that uh, you know, relative to uh someone, you know, if I play around, they're shooting ninety, my seventy to their ninety is kind of like me playing with uh Fitzpatrick, you know, there's about the same level of difference <laughs> and a whole lot of different scales in between. But still like to play a little bit competitively if I can.
1: Well, that's perfect. As far as tournament golf goes, as you said, you got better, you've won your club championship. Was there when was the first time you started playing in tournaments, what was when was the first time? And prior to that, was you were playing more casually. Did you notice a difference between tournaments and regular golf?
0: Yeah, yeah. There's no question. In fact, I have a terrible story um, about playing tournament golf in my uh, early 20s. You know, when I got pretty close to scratch and I started playing in tournaments, and I, I was always the, the type of athlete that um, would perform better under Pressure luckily, you know it, it kind of maybe that's true for most track and field athletes, although I coach and it's not true for all, but in volleyball and track and field, I would do better with pressure and it seemed that way with golf initially, you know uh, it just kind of I needed something on the line, but one particular tournament in my early twenties in Saskatchewan, so I was going to university out there, weather was pretty cold, it was a three day tournament around on a different course every day. It was it was snowing, you I know. Mean, it was like April in Saskatchewan's not the greatest of weather. Um, and it's all low handicap golfers. Think you had to have a a five handicap or less. And I'll yeah, I'll speed up this story, but played okay the first round. I think there was one guy that was under eighty, uh, you know, and I was eighty two, so it was fine. It was a really long course. It was you know, 7,100 yards in the snow is not not a treat in Saskatchewan. But that's fine. I was in it. Then the next day I went out and I ended up shooting 99. So that was the first time in probably, oh, I don't know, two years that I've been over 80. Uh, I can't remember the last time I was overnight. I shot a 99. And I had actually started to develop the, the yips with the driver and didn't know it at the time. Just thought, okay, there's, you know, something's kind of crept in my swing, whatever. Went to the range after the second round Couldn't duplicate it. I was getting through the ball nicely, flushing it. Went out for the third round, warm up, no problem. And drive around the first tee. And, you know, the best way I can describe the feeling is like pushing together opposing magnets. So that that face would either, I would either, uh, you know, hang on, never release it and the face would stay wide open. Or the tension would overtake my body early in the downswing and I would snap the face shut, you know. And I shot another 99. <laughs> so, yeah. And then you know, after the round, could not duplicate it. Couldn't duplicate it in practice sessions. It, it, it would almost hurt me in a range session to try and duplicate the shots that I was hitting off the tee. So I played uh, the rest of that summer, you know, with buddies in grad school. We go out on Friday and you know, played 27 holes. You know, played fine, no issues. Back to you know, trying to get to be a plus handicap. And then uh, entered another tournament in the fall and warm-up was fine, got to the first tee and massive block slice. And I was like, well, that's the feeling. I was, it's almost painful, you know, like I'm doing physical damage to my body. And, you know, so the, the problem was, is that then it crept into casual rounds. I could I could still never to this day duplicate it on the, on the range, but it was now in and I spent, I suffered for probably, uh, you know, two, three years breaking 80. You know, I went from You know, expecting to go out and shoot under par if I played well, to uh, being physically exhausted and almost damaged after rounds of golf, and you know, just you know, hoping to to break eighty would be would be awesome. So that's the difference between tournament golf and regular golf. It 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 debilitated me, and you know that lasted for a long time. And you know, uh, through a lot of different mechanisms, I was able to kind of work my way through it. So it was a bit of a to me. you know, winning the club championship was a bit of a minor miracle. You know, it, it was earned. It was a slow progress to get back to being able to, to play in competitive golf. But you know, on that route there, even just playing with someone new in a foursome could could trigger um, some really bad emotions. Yeah, so that's that's how I would I would use that anecdote to describe the difference between uh, tournament golf and a regular round.
1: Sasha, that's something that. I'm very sympathetic to you and I appreciate you sharing your story because that's a problem that I've had in my own game. And I can tell you, I told you I got injured, stopped playing, all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that happened to me was the driver yips and it was physically painful and like mentally painful because every time you got to impact, you knew something bad was going to happen. At least I did. I was like, okay, I'm going to hit the ball and somehow I'm going to find a way to get this club face pointed a million degrees right or a million degrees left, I'm never going to be able to find. it. And it got to the point that where I was looking at fairways, that were like 60 yards wide. And I was like, okay, can I get a seven iron to fit inside the 60 yards? I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can. And it was, it was very close as to whether I could or not a lot of the time. So I completely get what tournament golf does to you on that front. And I had a question for you from a biomechanics ex, uh, perspective if you're, if you're able to answer it, you know, when it comes to yips and something like that, at least in your case, was there any root cause that was specifically like allowing you to have the yips or leading to you have the yips more so than more than someone with another swing might have?
0: Yeah. I think in the end, you know, the, wherever the ball goes, is due to, you know, the, the face and the path and where it hits on the face at impact. And that's due to how you swing the club. So I, I think that I certainly initially had some, there were some mechanical reasons why, um, you know, I was getting the face left wide open or closed. And there's certainly things that I probably could have done that would never have, I would never have gone down this path. You know, if I had been able to recognize what was happening happening mechanically, and and address it. You know, there's certainly some negative feedback that can occur. You know, you hit bad golf shots that gets in your head, and then your confidence goes down. But it, it can start from mechanics. So if you know that, hey, if I get nervous, this is what happens. I, I put the club in this position, and then you can, even if you're nervous, you can try try your best to avoid that, and you can kind of reduce that negative feedback and the buildup of that scar tissue. But you know, you still need to. That it can be caused by mental issues. Uh, I'll call it a mental issue, mental weakness, not 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 being able to, you know, execute under pressure, uh, which you, is probably mostly between the ears and less to do with mechanics in the end. You know, you can still have mechanics that okay, I can do it on the range. Why can't I execute those mechanics on the course? And that's the the mental issue that you, you've got to overcome. And there's certainly things you can do to improve your, your mental state. I'm not a a huge believer that there are certain sets of swing mechanics that perform better under pressure. You know, there's something you can do. There's mechanics that lead to the open face, but pretty much any set of mechanics, if you have the right mental state, can perform under pressure. You know, so I think there's a lot of people that will search for a certain swing that, that they believe can, you know, do better under pressure, but I don't really fall into that camp.
2: What were some of the things that you did to improve your mental state under pressure? And something that we've talked about on this podcast before is that some people think that, you know, having a good mental game is just something that you're born with. Um, But me and Daniel are in agreement that it's something that can be worked on and a great mental game can be developed. So I would like you to speak on on that.
0: I'm not an expert in in sports psychology, but I've have lived experiences and I have the ability to read research, um, you know, and I'm, I'm decent at doing science. So, you know, I think that, you know, the, I, I agree with what you said, just like you can go to the gym and do exercises specific to make you swing faster. There are exercises you can do to put you in a, a better mental state, increase the probability that you will be able to execute the shots you need to execute under pressure. And, you know, for me, a big part of that was self-hypnosis, autogenic training, uh, positive self-talk, you know, there's, there's different names, imagery, you know, it would, you know, it would be the general category, but, I can sum it up as simply as, you know, I'll, I'll use uh hypnosis as an example. It's a fear, you step on the tee and you have a fear that something bad is going to happen. You you have a perception that there's going to be a negative outcome when you hit the golf ball. That leads to high anxiety and then you don't execute. That that level of fear, you you feels real, you perceive it to be real, but somebody else has a terrible fear of flying, a terrible feel, fear of spiders, snakes, you name it and um there's lots of examples where hypnosis can have someone that has a terrible fear of snakes holding a snake, you know, and that person probably never wants to hold a snake. And, you know, hypnosis and and, and mental strategies work best when you want them to work, you know, so there's actually a higher probability that it will help your golf swing, you know, your golf game, your execution, you want to be able to step on the tee and hit a good drive. Most people don't even really care if they ever hold a snake. So, you know, but if you can overcome your fear of holding snakes, spiders, heights, whatever um, it it speaks to the strength and the ability of uh, mental training to improve your execution under pressure, which is really just, you know, kind of overcoming that fear.
1: Perfect. You mentioned that you're pretty good at science. So let's talk a little bit about your science and golf background and how you kind of got those to overlap. Tell us a little bit more about how you ended up moving down that path and some of the things that you've learned.
0: Well I guess the PhD got me on that path. <laughs> PhD got me on that path but you know I like teaching I like doing research I like answering questions um that's uh the best part of my job so you know even the consulting that I do it's it's um about answering a question it's just in my nature it's what I enjoy doing you know I'll never really retire from from doing that that's you know something that's why I get up in the morning that's why I that's what I, I like doing a lot of uh the cons, cons consultation products i choose now projects i choose now are about more because i'm interested in it rather than anything else so i yeah i don't know that's that's how i got going down the path that's i mean that's that's my day to day life that's what i do
1: yeah absolutely so that phd sends you down the path but as far as some of uh, your research goes i've read some of your research and it's always very intriguing what You found in a variety of facets and how you test things. So let's talk a little bit about some specifics. Let's talk about shoes. I believe you've done some work as regard to shoes and how they, golf shoes in particular, and how they interact with the ground and interact with golfer swings. And I'll tell you the commonplace thought when I was younger. So not that, not that long ago, maybe 10 years ago, at least from what I understood from instructors was, Hey, you want to have a shoe that has a hard bottom or a hard sole. I'm not sure there's a specific technical term as to that, but stiffness? you want it perfect. Stiffness? You want a shoe with a lot of stiffness because that'll help you with ground reaction forces. And some of what you said is, I wouldn't say turn that over, but it shows that there's, Certain types of shoes that are going to work for different types of players. So tell us a little bit about that project and what you've learned and what you found in that.
0: Sure. So that, that research of my connection with with FootJoy, who I've been doing um, projects with now, I guess, about 10 years, uh, started through my research with a company called uh, Body Track. They had a mat. Um, I think they're uh, owned by V1 Sports now. So the mat to measure uh, how you um, shift your pressure during the swing. And so, I was doing research with uh, body track and uh, needed participants to come into my lab. I do a lot of my research in the winter in Canada. And I had a bad experience. The first golf study I did where golfers would come in with their shoes on and they would be from the last round they played in November and they'd be full of mud and the lab was a mess. So I reached out to uh, FootJoy and said, "Hey, you know, can you guys provide me with some shoes? You know, and and um, you know, after I do the my university stuff, I'll go home at night, and you know, if there's anything I find, you know, I'm happy to share it with you." That was kind of the initial trade-off. Just I just needed shoes, you know. So if somebody came with a size seven, I had a pair of shoes to give them. And I thought, you know, they and they agreed. It was awesome. They're like, "Yeah, we we can help you out." Um, so I then had the idea. Well. If I'm going to get golfers taking, say, 36 swings, I might as well get them to take 18 in one pair of shoes and 18 in another pair of shoes, and I can see if there's, there's any difference. And so I asked for, uh, at the time, what I described, because Future has so many models, right? they were the great company to team up with. They've got so many different varieties of shoes that exist. So I asked for a pair of relatively structured shoes. They were the XPS shoe, these things were like tanks. They're the, probably the stiffest shoe that Footjoy's ever made. They had this big wide sole and the M projects, which were essentially like slippers. So, you know, when you're doing an initial study, you want to maximize the effect, right? You want to pick two things that are very different. If there's something there, then you can, you know, start to make things a little bit less dramatic or test them in, in more real real world settings. But you first want to make sure that there's something there. So it, it certainly seemed like some golfers performed better in mobile and some golfers performed better in, in the structured shoes. And I use a strokes gained driving statistic that I used to to calculate that with. So it's a combination of distance and accuracy. So I would take Daniel's 18 drives in the M project and it would be a balanced order. She'd so hit six in one shoe, six in another shoe, six, six, swap, and Cooper would start with a different shoe, you know, as participant number two. And he'd swap. So, everything was balanced. It's part of science trying to maximize your internal validity. And it certainly seemed like, yeah, there's some differences. Some golfers perform better in these shoes and other shoes. So, analyzed that data at home on my couch, sent it to Footjoy and said, hey, you know, I think there's something here. And, you know, they're like, yeah, maybe, right? Because I had 40 participants in the study. So, I uh, sent another couple of models the next Next uh, time I was bringing participants to the lab, same thing showed up. And also some of the participants overlapped. So Daniel was in study one. He performed better in mobile. Cooper was in study one. He performed better in structured and it held for study two. And then I decided to um, apply an interesting statistical technique called discriminant function analysis, which it, it essentially allows me to figure out, are there any variables that I can collect that allow me to predict which shoes you would perform better in. Instead of running this full test of well, let's hit 18 drives, do a strokes gained uh driving analysis. You know, if you were, if FootJoy was gonna buy into this, you know, and they're gonna do shoe fitting, we can't have people taking two hours and running these sophisticated tests. You know, it's like, hey, it's like if you do a shaft fitting, hopefully you can hit the shaft five or six times, you see the spin numbers. Come up on you know TrackMan or flight scope, and you have a sense you can do a fitting relatively quickly, so I was doing research with body track at the time, so it, this is an easy way. the mat's there. Have somebody take a swing on the mat. Can we predict which shoe you should be using and there's this inherent connection that people have they see the mat, they think the ground shoes this makes sense, even though really. The data that i was using from the mat represented more things than just what was going on at the ground interaction level so came up with hundreds of of variables how fast your center of pressure shifted to your lead side how much it shifted from your heel to your toe time in the downswing a whole bunch of variables this is how discriminant function analysis works and then you say okay can i predict which shoe based on all these variables people will perform better in And you kind of can come up with a little equation. And the one that I picked, uh, the way I formulated was if you end up with a minus three, then that pushes you really towards mobile. If you end up with a plus three, then that pushes you really far towards structured. And if you're somewhere in the middle, you can probably use both. And so I started realizing, hey, this is working. I can predict. I can predict. If I use this data, I get somebody new into the lab, and I have them take one swing on this mat, I can say, oh, this person's going to perform better in structured. Or this person's going to perform better in mobile. So Footjoy says, okay, well, we're going to collect some data in our shoebox. That's the, the the lab they had down at Brockton at the time where they, could, they had a simulator and they had uh, force plates. So they sent me all the force plate data. They didn't send me the ball flight data. And I think there was 180 golfers about in that uh, first study. I'm like, all right, tell us what shoes each of these golfers perform better in. You know, so <laughs> I was like, okay, so suck in all the 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 mat data and i just make a prediction and it was an 89 percent match so and it turns out about a third of the third of golfers uh, can swing in either shoe a third tend to be better with mobile A third tend to be better with structured and so they bought in and uh, we did some testing on on tour players at at events um where they'd step on the mat and they'd swing like in an icon or swing in a, a more mobile shoe um and uh, using a GC quad and the, the data seemed to, to hold up. It became a bit of a logistical challenge to roll out a fitting mat at particularly green grass accounts. So if you go down, you're in Kentucky and you roll into the local pro shop at a golf course and there's one guy behind the counter and there's a the marshal and they're like, hey, I want to buy a pair of shoes. They got to take a mat out to the range. That gets, that gets challenging. You know, It probably could be solved in the future, but um, there were some logistical challenges. The science was great, just tough to put into, into practice.
1: Yeah. So what are some of the generalities as far as what you saw? You said some people are better restructured, some people could go either way, and some people are better with a looser fit. What are some of the I – know, I know it's hard to take something with 100-plus variables and maybe condense it down, but if you could do that, that might be useful.
0: Yeah, well, we condensed it down to into the – there was only uh, four variables that ended up going into the uh, final equation that did the prediction. And even those, you know, the way I would describe it, it's kind of like – it's purely statistical. You need to then figure out what is the mechanical meaning behind these. You know, like if if I know that, um, you know, um, the the Chiefs win every time they play after it rains on a Monday and statistically you're like, look – this is it. This is they win. If it rains on a Monday, they win And the, the you don't need to know why, you're betting on the Chiefs, right? But then you go, Okay, why is that? <laughs> you know, like let's try to figure it out. So basically some of the things that would push you to a structured shoe are an aggressive transition. Um so a fast downswing. So I won't get into the actual variables that went into the equation, but the meaning behind them would be if you have so if you're like John Rom, you know, and I'm not necessarily he might not even be playing structured shoes, but that would be he would be a clear example of someone that probably should be in structured shoes. Someone like Ernie Els would need to be wearing structures. You know, he's got a very gradual transition. Um, someone that ends up having their center of pressure really on their lead side through impact. We could think of Jordan's Jordan Spieth does better with a mobile shoe. And it seems that seems to be the case because some really structured shoes kind of have this uh, very kind of digital. You know, if this is my lead foot, where you're, if it's a very stiff outside edge, it's kind of like here, here, and all of a sudden, whoop. You know what I mean? It's that firm edge. And if you want to roll over that lead ankle, um, that can become a little bit, uh, chaotic and unpredictable. If you're trying to swing, you've got this very rigid edge that's either flat or then on your side. You know, something that has a little bit, a, an outer sole, that outer lateral edge of the sole that has a little bit more give would push, would, would be uh, a shoe that I would recommend for someone that has a big shift in their their center of pressure towards their lead side. Yeah. So, those are, you know, a couple of things that you could, if you're going to go out and get your own pair of shoes, what you might consider thinking about.
2: So, it sounds like through your research there, you Kind of disproved that old school belief that a stiffer shoe is better, not for everybody. you know some people may do well in a stiffer shoe through your other research in biomechanics and movement patterns, what are some of the other old school beliefs that you have disproven, and what are maybe some that you've found to be true?
0: Yeah, I um, struggle with the word prove, but I you know I like suggest. Certainly Newton's laws um, prove things, you know, as close as we can get to that. But to me, not even one, like there's lots of studies that I've done that seem pretty tight in my mind. And in 10 years, I might say, yeah, no, there was something wrong with that. Um, Or there was an angle I wasn't looking at. So I would never say prove, but I would say suggest. One thing that I would get close to proving would be that, you know, um, gravity adds a lot of speed. You know, people like, well, just let gravity swing the club. That I think I'm pretty confident saying that, you know, I don't know if I've proven it to be wrong, but certainly I've got a paper out there that shows that, you know, it's maybe like 1% or 2% of club head speed. You know, it's just not that important, but I still see a lot of golfers talking or instructors saying, not a lot, but there are a few that say, hey, let's let's let gravity um, do the work. I've got some, you know, some, they're fringe cases. There's a million golf instructors out there, a million golfers. They've all got a million perspectives. So, I mean, I've got so many things floating around in my head. I'd rather not take it upon myself to single anybody out. But if you ask a specific question about a topic, I'd be happy to uh, give my opinion.
1: <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I think, aside from that, you know, we've talked about speed and we'll talk a little bit more about the stack system shortly but we also know that you've worked with players through, with, with your experience, et cetera. When did that start happening for you? And what really was the catalyst for that?
0: Yeah. I, from a speed perspective, I started uh, working with players. I, you know, I think because I, I would lecture and educate instructors on the biomechanics of swinging a club. And to me, um, the same physics that goes into determining you know how golf club heads and balls work the same physics det- determines how we get the club moving fast and there was all this information out there that just seemed not quite right and missing the point so i started educating instructors on look, this is this is how the golf swing works not just impact um and i if, if i can measure your swing and tell you exactly where all your club heads speed comes from It adds up, you know, the things you can do. And I think, you know, probably the first person I worked with would have been Podrick Harrington. He's worked with, you know, a ton of people. But I met with him um, at TPI. Um, So he started, he was obviously, he's been chasing speed and chasing everything in golf, which is awesome. He's such a curious mind, you know, since he started playing. But so um, flew out to TPI and uh, Greg Rose was nice enough to host us. And he was doing some, obviously, some other assessment stuff with TPI while he was out there. But um, yeah. Uh, put them on a little uh, speed training program. And at that time I was essentially, it was kind of, you know, early stack stuff, but, you know, we didn't have nice hardware. I was like using lead tape and washers and the programs weren't particularly refined. And, uh, you know, then um, I started uh, working uh, a lot, talking to uh, Kevin Duffy, who was a trainer in the UK worked with, uh, he's he's worked with uh, Lee Westwood, Louis Eustazen, Tommy Fleetwood, I think he's still with Tommy, um, Jason Day, uh, Graham McDowell. So, he's had stints with lots of players. And so, I uh, really, we had lots of conversations around golf swing physics and biomechanics and training for speed. And so, um, through him, um, I got players some very rudimentary stacks. And, you know, they saw some some improvements. Um, so, that kind of was like a bit of a validation at the highest level. And at the same time, I was doing my own little studies at the university and in different different places around, you know, North America, did some at Ping, did some with some high school academies um, to try and get a sense of, okay, you know, just good experimental research into the fundamentals of speed training. So that's how I kind of got into with, with tour players was, uh, you know, through working with their trainers and their coaches, essentially.
1: So then when it came to the development of the stack, tell us about that progression. It sounds like pretty early on, you're like, Hey, people, people need help with speed and not just, you know, beginners, not just middle of the road amateurs, even high level players want more speed and they haven't maxed out their capacity, generally speaking, or at least their ability to train for more speed. So, you found some like maybe some breadcrumbs that kind of led you along the way to developing the stack, but walk us through that trail to where you developed the stack and then ended up launching it and the success that it's had.
0: Sure, well the the fundamental research using, you know, washers from Home Depot and you know, and, and figuring out what's what weights are too heavy? You know, um, what weights are too light? Did you do heavy and light stuff in a single session? What players, what golfers respond better to programs with more overload or, or more over speed? Um, became very clear that this was something that everybody should be doing. Uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a fundamental skill in golf, and it might be the most important skill in golf. To be honest, if you're going to take a large group of golfers and try to come up with one physical characteristic or skill that's going to separate them it's going to be clubhead speed if you don't swing fast you aren't going to play very good golf there's other things that go into it, but it's it's a clear signal um you need to you need to be swinging fast to get better at golf so you kind of need to be training for speed your entire life just how you wouldn't expect to be like oh now I'm a great putter I never have to putt or you know, my wedge game's awesome and I'm done. No, it's like you need to work at it to get to a certain level, and then you need to work to keep it there. So that became very clear. And then it was, okay, well, I think this can become or should become a product. And in order to make it something that I wanted to use, so I had Excel spreadsheets, you know, and players would do the program and then I'd get their speeds, and then I would, you know, run it through an algorithm and tell them what their next workout should be. See, so, you know, you need a radar you need a dynamic program. So you need a, a the, the best programs have a trainer that's telling you, right, Daniel, you've gotten into the gym and you've gotten into the gym with Cooper and you guys are both doing bench press with 200 pounds for a set of five. But then after a couple of weeks, Daniel's moved up and he can now do seven, right? Well, you should be lifting more weight and we should be able to change it on the spot. Like today, if you get stronger, then the next workout should change. And we should be able to do an assessment to figure out, well, what 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 exercises and stuff should you be doing to get stronger? They might be different than the program might look different than than Cooper's. Not everybody's the same. So in order for it to really be something that I wanted to use I needed to have an app, we need to have this really sophisticated hardware. So I and I didn't have any ability to do that myself. You know, I couldn't phone up uh, China and say, "Hey guys, let's uh, you know." I, 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 I'm, you know, a a very weak engineer at best. I can't design and create things. You know, I have concepts. So I had a good uh relationship with Bing, very good relationship. Uh, you know, uh brand ambassador and do a lot of research with them and, you know, have presented it to them to say, Hey, let's, you know, maybe this is something that you, you guys would be interested in partnering with. You know, and they they just don't do training aids, you know, and that it was just would have been a really complicated thing for them to get into. But Barty Jertsen, who was someone that I work closely uh, with at Ping, who was a fantastic golfer, thought it was a you know thought it was a pretty good idea, and you know I'd work with him on his his physical enhancements through speed training and some some weightlifting programs, and he got very very fast. So he went from you know kind of average speed 140 miles per hour to now in you know the mid 120s and. I still am holding out hope that he'll be, you know, playing at 190 ball speed here um, in his early 40s. But so he was like, hey, this this really works. You know, That he went from, he was playing in major championships and he made the cut at Bethpage Black because of his distance, you know, the distance that he gained. So he said, hey, um, Mr. Solheim, do you mind if, uh, you know, I do this on Monday evenings for a bit, see if this takes off, you know, partner up with Sasha?" And thankfully, he said yes, you know. So, you know, we teamed up and, We've got, uh, along with our um, app developer, who, who's also a partner, our Venn diagrams just, you know, overlap enough where we can communicate, but we've got very separate skills that feed in. So I'm already designed an amazing piece of hardware. I was like, look, these are the specs I need. Moment of inertia, mass, center mass location. And he designed the shaft from scratch. He, you know, all, you know the, the hardware looks pretty cool. It's all high quality. And then um, we started putting together the app and now we've got this really awesome system. And, you know, that's... It's something that I was like, "Oh, this isn't worth doing unless we have all the pieces coming together." So, you know, I would have been happy using it myself with tour players, but now it's great that everybody else can use it as well.
1: Yeah, I'm grateful to be one of the beneficiaries of you you rolling that out. And as as I've told you, I've had uh, tried to convince other friends to use it, and they're starting to. And I think one of the great things about it is how you design how you designed it and how Marty designed it, as far as how the EA the ease of just getting it around, you know, having those weights there. I know, it does, I know it doesn't seem like revolutionary, but compared to some of the alternatives out there, it's a heck of a lot easier just to carry that with you. Like I go to work and in my work, there's a gym that I can use that at. So I carry the weights, my speed radar, all that kind of stuff in my backpack, top pocket, and then I can just carry that in with me, carry it out. It's not like I'm having to lug anything around. So that was great. And then two, I think one of the little superpowers and – secrets that's going to come out of this. And I'm sure you're aware since you're on the back end is just the data that you guys are able to get on the back end. And the more you're able to learn, I think there's a lot of benefits as to golfers gaining speed. And then you guys are going to be the beneficiary as far as getting to see on the back end, how things work in developing better systems. What are some of the learnings that you've had seeing the data coming back from golfers using
0: it? The data is critical. Uh, that's the thing that excites me the most, being able to do science on really large data sets. Some of the things that I find most interesting, I want to know why some people don't get faster. You know, so we've got about 0.5% of the users, one in every 200 that gain less than 3 miles per hour. Um, luckily that's low enough where either I can reach out to them or, you know, things have been getting, you know, uh, a little bit busier now. I think we're getting close to 16,000 users, so maybe there's like, you know, 50 new people starting every day or something. So I can't quite keep up unless they reach out, but they reach out. And then I want to know what are those reasons, you know? And, and usually it's we, we ease people in, you know, so people don't get injured. Videos pop up before every set and say, hey, this is the intent, how hard you should be swinging, what you should be thinking about with each set. A lot of folks have fallen that 0.5% stick at too low of an effort level. And there's just not a stimulus. So the, you know, an analogy that 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 I use is um, if you take Usain Bolt or an Olympic level runner, someone in it, so let's say someone in college who's already you know they haven't reached their full potential, but they're you know they run a lot. And you say, all right, we're going to sprint at 95% effort level. They're just not going to get any faster. You know, if someone's never run before and they start, you put them in a training program running at 95%, they'll they'll get a bit faster, but then they'll plateau. And that's a re- this is the main reason why tour players. If you look at someone like, say, Dustin Johnson, you know, or you can pick a million tour players. He already started out fast, but he never got any faster. And there's a million golfers that just, great, they, you know, tour players, that their speed stays the same for six years. And you're like, well, that's their job. Why, why aren't they getting any faster? They're taking hundreds of driver swings every week. Yeah, but they're all at the submaximal level, right? So there's not the stimulus to get faster. Um, so that's a, a big thing that I've learned. And, you know, the, the, how many people don't warm up properly. So we've got, we, I can tell when I go into the the, the the data to see, you know, you should be swinging certain weights at a certain speed. And, you know, from doing the app that not every first set's with heavy, not every, you know, last set's with light. It mixes them around as you go through the program. But I can tell if people haven't warmed up sufficiently because their speeds increase throughout the session more so than they should otherwise. And that's the second biggest reason why people don't get faster is that we're trying to be really efficient. I do not want people to waste their time. Um, You should probably spend just as much time warming up as as you do doing the actual session. So I'm 44, somewhat fit, but got some orthopedic issues. I will spend 15 to 20 minutes warming up for a 15 second stack session. But every one of those reps needs to be high quality. And if you get, you know, half your reps done and you're not warm and they're not at a sufficient level of speed, you're not going to see the see the benefit. And then, you know, there's some, some people have their swing mechanics for speed are so bad. This is another subset of that 0.5%. And for whatever reason, it, most people's mechanics improve through stack training kind of organically, you know, they see the speed number, they make some adjustments, they don't even realize they're doing it. They just, they're kind of self-organizing, you know, based on the feedback of that speed number. Some people, in particular golfers that cast from the top, you know, so I see, I'll watch the lower body, lower body starts to move. I look up and the club's already halfway into the downswing, you know? Um, so th- th- those folks can struggle to add speed. Uh, so many things that, that you know, that that I've learned though, on top of that, that one arm can be a very big limiting factor. So a lot of golfers could have I should say a lot, but you know, about ten percent could have a twenty mile per hour difference in maximum speed capabilities between between the two arms. Some folks, we do a percentile speed graph. I'm not sure if you've seen this, uh, Daniel, but if you swipe right to left in the app, you can bring up your training speeds. Swipe again, and it will show you your speed records for every weight that you've swung in miles per hour. You can hit a toggle to change it from speed to percentiles. And you can see, hey, where am I relative to all the other stackers out there in terms of how fast am I swinging for my age and gender? But then you'll notice that some you you might be a golfer that swings heavy stuff really fast, so your your heavy weights are in the you know ninetieth percentile, but the lighter weights are in the. Fiftieth percentile, and looking back at at you know some uh, continually doing research, I can look at that in the lab now and say, oh, okay, well, why is that the case? And it seems that golfers who have the ability to swing lighter stuff relative to their peer group are good at getting speed from their body out to the club, so they're good at managing lag. Golfers that have relatively fast speeds to the, compared to the peer group with Heavier weights are good at getting speed from the ground into the system, so they're good at getting angular momentum from the ground and then that that allows us then to better recommend programs more overload to some more overspeed to others based on that that information. There's a lot of stuff that we're we're learning with that with that big data there, you know and then there's even you know stuff that isn't related to speed wow. training, but some of the information that ping's using is around uh, sensitivity to mass. So everybody, the more mass you load on the end of a club, the more mass you add to a club, the slower you're going to swing it, okay? But that has a certain slope for everybody. So some people, the, the more weight you add, this, this, they start to swing slower really fast. Other people are a little bit flatter. People that have that flat slope, so you can add a lot of weight and they don't seem very sensitive to it, they should be playing driver heads with a lot of mass So there's an interesting relationship. The physics of impact says that the heavier a clubhead is for a given speed, the further the ball goes, the more ball speed you get, right? But we're humans. So the the more mass you add to a clubhead, the slower we swing it. So we're always trying to maximize ball speed. And it's this trade-off between, do I want a heavy clubhead that can give me high ball speed or do I want a light clubhead that I can swing fast? Well, we can look at your stack data and tell you whether you should be playing a 220 gram head or 185 gram head to maximize your ball speed. That's pretty cool because we have that speed sensitivity data in the app.
2: Now, I would assume that you would want to have a heavier head that maximizes ball speed rather than a lighter head to where you're swinging it faster because you would want to be as efficient as possible. Would that be true?
0: Well, so the number that you always want to look at is strokes gain driving. That's, that's what driver is going to maximize your strokes gain. So you could be a player that everybody's going to swing the 185 gram head faster. No question. But some people might have a really big increase in speed. So let's take you and Daniel. Let's say you're both swinging a 200 gram driver head at 100 miles an hour. You drop down to 185 you might jump up to 110, he might only jump up to 105 grams. Well, that means that you should probably play that extra 5 miles per hour over him or that extra 10 miles per hour is going to give you so much more ball speed, even though you've lost 15 grams of head weight, that your ball speed will be faster with the 185. Right, his ball speed might be faster. He might be like, "Oh, if I add another twenty five grams, my club head speed goes from a hundred down to ninety eight That extra twenty grams did you know didn't do anything to me. So now he can play this heavier club head, and the heavier the club head also means that you can add more mass to the perimeter, so you could take out you know that that weight that you slide around the back and instead of it being you know twenty five grams, you might be able to fire on you know forty grams on there, so now you've got a bigger m o i and now you you've got a more forgiving clubhead, so you it's not just ball speed it's primarily ball speed, but also what happens to your dispersion so if you are you know sixty five years old and you have a very high sensitivity to mass, but you hit it right into the center every time, you are a clear candidate for that one hundred and eighty five gram club head if you are someone who' hits it all over the face (laughs) and you could swing something that's super heavy and not really see your speed drop that much, you're a clear candidate for the heavier
1: club head. That is super cool. I'm not going to lie. Despite being a stack user, I had no clue this was there. And so while you were talking, I picked up the phone, looked through it and it's unique. Yeah. To see the different percentile, like quickly for me, like those lower weights for the most part, I'm in the... 74th to 80th percentile, whereas everything like 145 and up, I'm in the 90th percentile of. So to see that drop off is incredible.
0: Yeah. So you're, you're probably not doing a great job using the ground to get angular momentum into the system, but you're doing a pretty good job once it's in there to get it out to the club.
1: Interesting. Well, that, that is very cool. And one of the things that I wanted to ask about. So, in, so the, the, app
0: will, the app will pick up on that and that will influence your your programming.
1: Okay. So I'll I'll look forward to seeing kind of how that plays out and hopefully as, as things go, that's one of the unique things you talked about is kind of how your swing changes some based on the app in the sense that like you're just naturally optimized to s- solve for the problem. And that's something I noticed in my own swing using the stack was, okay, like, I was, I was working on a few things and there are a few things I never really un- understood how to do, but essentially just by focusing on the stack and trying to optimize my speed there, I solved a lot of the, I solved a lot of the problems, especially at least from my perspective, one of the benefits of it was not having the club head there uh, in the sense that like, I no longer worried about, Hey, here's where the club head is at impact. It was like, I just got to swing it as fast as possible. Possible. And then, like later on when I'm practicing, et cetera, like I figure out how to get the club head in the right place with that, but I don't have to worry about the club head while I'm practicing. Is that a benefit that you've seen?
2: I kind of want to add, I kind of want to add on to that. It's like, it's not a widely held opinion, but it's an opinion that I know some people hold. And it's that, like, oh, I don't want to use stack or speed sticks, or I don't want my players to use stack or speed sticks because there's not a club face on the head and they're going to lose. Club face awareness, and they're going to mess up their swing mechanics by using speed training. What would you say to that person?
0: I feel sorry for them, but but I hope I hope that they are coaching the competitors to the people that I'm coaching. No, I'm, I, but partly. <laughs> so, well, you know, f- first of all, the initially I had planned on uh, like the, the the stack has gone through a lot of iterations. I had planned on initially using driver heads you know let's let's use an actual driver head let's look at ways to manipulate the weight of an at your own club or I did a little speed training study at ping where we actually used a driver that you could hit and we um, added a ton of hot melt in one and cut out circles of the other one with using a laser cutter so one was like 150 grams one was 240 grams And then other studies where the stack where you put the weights on actually bent at 90 degrees. So when you loaded the weights on, the center mass was off the shaft. So it kind of had like a face feeling and it felt like a club where the center mass wasn't in line with the shaft. And these weren't, you know, large studies, but, you know, 30 participants in a a group. And basically, it was almost a negative to do all your speed training either with a ball because people just didn't swing fast enough. So a lot of people have a governor when they start doing speed training where that ball slows them down. So you start getting – you start becoming concerned about making good contact. That's inhibiting your learning. And, and then if you're not swinging fast, you're not getting a training stimulus. And, and then even like, okay, well, let's remove the ball and let's just look at well what happens if you have this center of mass off the, off the face. And there seemed to be dispersions increased. It seemed to be like if you're focused on swinging something with a face during your speed training all the time, it actually had negative repercussions in terms of ball dispersions in the post test. So, you know, it, it, th- those studies could have been outliers. You know, you, you do one study, you don't know, but it was enough for me to say, well, it's more complicated to design. There's no benefit here, and I could, you know, to me it seemed logical to be like, hey, look, we're if you're in the gym and you're lifting a dumbbell for whatever reason, you don't you don't if let's say you do an incline dumbbell press, you don't look at your grip and go, oh sh- shoot, that's way stronger than it is on my golf club. I better weaken that a little bit. Like, no, the stack is primarily a gym exercise. You know, it's overload over speed training using a movement that's very similar to your golf swing. But the focus is on learning overall movement patterns for increasing club head speed. And it's not an uncommon question, well, it's going to mess up my my swing. Well, I don't think there has to be... There's no automatic negative transfer. If you go out and max sprint, right? You sprint at 100, you know, as fast as you can. Does your form running in a jog or a 30 you know, percent less get worse? You know, like the, the baseball pitchers trying to increase their fastball can... Is it like, oh, now I can't even like throw my socks in the hamper. You know what I mean? Like it's, it seems, it seems yeah. uh, crazy to me that, that there would be negative transfer. In fact, it's like some people would say like I have had people reach out and say, well, now I'm, you know, after speed training, I'm halfway through the foundation and I'm starting to, you know, jerk the club down in my real swing. So I'm like, all right, well, do your speed training and, you know, think Gankus thoughts like you're leaving the club head up. Pretend you're Cameron Young. If you do feel that there is negative transfer, right, then start f- having positive transfer thoughts. Start focusing on things that you want to incorporate into your driver's swing. You know that's that's what I do with the tour players that I work with. Hey, you like this stuff for your driver? It helps you increase speed. Great. You ingrain those thoughts with with the stack. There doesn't have to be negative transfer. I think uh, if, I've got a lot more thoughts on this let's say I send you guys out to work on your bunker games, right? So you grab your 56 degree wedge, you go in the bunker. and Let's say, I know everybody's working on closed stance stuff now, but let's say you open up your stance, open up the face. You're hitting three or four inches behind the ball. You're hitting these soft, you know, bunker shots out with a little bit of spin. And I'm like, all right, Daniel Cooper, come on down here. We're going to hit the off back foot, some low spinning 30, 40 yarders with the 56. You're not like, oh my God, I... I can't hit this any. You know, you're not like sculling them because you just worked on this bunker shot. It's the same club. It's a wildly more different movement than you know. Uh, what's the difference between your stack swing and your driver swing? Or does your bunk, does your chip pitch shots affect your seven iron? Like there might be some little subtle thing, but I mean, to think that it's you, you know, God, I can't practice my driver swing and then go putt. Like uh, I started smashing everything way by the hole. It was crazy. For some people, there's an expectation that it will mess things up, but there's no real. I don't see any theory about why it would, you know, and and if it does, practice things that reinforce the, the 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 good thoughts. Here's here's the final thing I'll say in this. Let's say if you went out and did a poll at the Genesis this week, and you went around the range and what, there's 140 golfers, something like, I'm not sure. How, I don't even know what the size of the field is, but you said, all right, how are you guys? Hitting? How do you like what? Describe your ball striking. Are you happy with your ball striking, or is it under control? Are you spraying it? Probably at least half the tour players. Would probably not be happy with their ball striking right now. Maybe the other half are like, "Yeah, I got a good shot this week. I'm feeling pretty good." They do nothing in particular over the next two months, except you know try really hard to get better at golf. You know nothing. And we interview them all again at the memorial or whenever you know, some, whatever's in two months. Half of them that were happy with their ball striking are now going to say in two months, "Oh God, I'm you know I can't find the face." You know, I... so the the base rate that we're comparing to. Isn't like if you're looking at does speed training negatively impact your your swing mechanics, it's not everybody stays happy all the time. at least half the people in the world, golfers, feel like their mechanics go to shit and nothing's happened right so so like when I bring people into the lab and I have got actual data to compare this to hey let's do let's do your driver, let's measure the dispersion, where are you hitting these thirty six drives let's do stack training let's measure dispersion again. Half those golfers are you know, actually improving their dispersion. It's actually getting tighter. Some of them are hitting it worse, but they would have been hitting it worse. It's got nothing to do with the stack training. You know, They slept funny, they got a kink neck, whatever, who knows what it is. So you also have to keep that in perspective. It probably, maybe it's a stack training, but there's a lot of other factors that, that could be causing that. And if it is a stack training, then start using it as positive swing reps to do things that you want to ingrain in your swing.
1: I think that's a great argument, obviously. And I think you kind of put together one, it's it's not like the argument was that you're saying right there was built after the fact you were when you were designing this, you took into account, hey, what's going to be best for the golfer and kind of what you described there is, hey, a club, a club face there would actually not necessarily be positive thing to have as far as gaining speed and so i think that's very helpful for for people to know and what you've put out with the stack has been very helpful to me as i said and to lots of other people and i kind of want to despite how great it is i want to move a little bit past that because i want to talk a little bit about when it comes and i know we we're somewhat limited on time and i want to talk about a little bit of stuff related to tournaments and that is okay i've worked on my speed i've gotten my speed up and let's talk even about the pros that you work with. All right, they got they got their speed up. They get out to the course. What speed are they playing at, relatively speaking to their max, and then maybe some some other numbers that you'll see there? Because you know the number that's thrown out sometimes is like, oh, he's playing at eighty percent speed, and we know that like someone's not actually playing at eighty percent speed because it, they might be playing at eighty percent of. Effort or what they feel like, but eighty percent of speed is not what they're playing at. So tell us what you see. What you see, guys, play at tournament wise, and maybe what people should be aiming for to play at tournament tournament wise relative to their max speed. Yeah,
0: so there's quite a range. I think that the benefit of of stack training is that it increases your maximum potential. That, that's you know that's what. What the direct objective is from the training perspective, with the possibility then to play at a faster speed, you know, in terms of the number on the radar, but that's actually going to be a lower percentage of your maximum. And so, if we look at, say, Fitzpatrick, that was certainly the case early on in the in his stack training. Um, I've got some great data. I track his stack training volume with his strokes gained off the tee as well as his tournament speeds. And for the the first year, twenty twenty one, you can see his strokes gained off the tee increasing but his ball speed is not really moving up that much he actually got a little his dispersions actually slightly improved because he was swinging in my opinion and I've got the data to support this um is that he was swinging at a slightly lower percentage of his maximum so even though he was out there playing at 112 you know when I when I first went to work with him like it would be really challenging for him to swing over 114 you know like maybe he'd get one out at 116. So he's sw- he was playing at a higher percentage of his maximum than say half you know like let's say six months into the stack training, he's averaging one fifteen, but his max is over one twenty. you know so he's playing at a lower percentage of his maximum. so he's able to find fairways now relatively you know he was always very straight, you know let's let's not kid ourselves, but he was playing at a lower percentage of his maximum. Then you've got someone like Victor Hovland who, who stacks. And shockingly to me <laughs> was that he's playing at like 98% of his maximum. So, his, he, his stacks, like his e-speed in the stack is essentially what, he, <laughs> what he's bringing to the course. And he's, he said that, you know, he's like, yeah, that's just, you know, which is kind of scary. You know, it's amazing how talented he is. And he's Next to Fitzpatrick, if you look at the top 100 guys from 2022 in terms of FedEx Cup and you look at how much they've increased their club head speed, he's the, Fitzpatrick was one in 2022 and, and Hovland was second in ball speed, uh, in club head speed, sorry. Um, and so he just keeps bringing that max speed to the course, which is amazing. But then you look at someone like, Tony Finow who we've all seen those clips where he can, when he actually unloads them, when he can get up to like 135, 136. He might even have 140 in there, but he's playing at 120. You know, so he's actually playing at a very low percentage of his – He might be – I mean, it's not 80%, but he you know, might be in the high 80s of his potential maximum. And he's – Winning a lot in 2022, 2023, so it's tough. It's tough to say that that the strategy isn't working. My gut tells me that he should probably be swinging a little bit faster. It's tough for me to imagine that his stroke gain off the tee is optimized, but uh, you know he's got a very smart coach, Summer Hayes, and I'm sure they're testing that out. But I'd still love to take a look at the data. I'd love to run a little stroke gain driving simulation and have take a look at as driver dispersions overlay them over a bunch of holes you know, where he's swinging at say 125 instead of 120. I'm guessing the 125 is going to be a little bit better, especially with, um, you know, a new G430 in the bag. Yeah. So that, you know, where where should you be at? I think that um, it would be nice if we all could do our own little strokes gained uh, off the T calculation, but uh, maybe you're closer to Hovland, maybe you're closer to a fin now. So that it's tough. It's tough to say, but the... I'm still pretty confident that stack training increases your maximum capacity and it allows you to play faster, but a lower percentage of that. And if you're playing at a slightly lower percentage, you're, you're probably going to be finding more fairways. You know, it's interesting if you look at, I think some people have said, well, I chased speed and it didn't work out. I think it's because those players historically have decided to swing faster. So they're, they're swinging at a, at a higher percentage of their maximum. You know, let's take a look at Bryson DeChambeau when he was playing on the PGA Tour. Um, His average ball speed was like 192 in that last year, something like that. Low 190s, which seems crazy high, you know. And you got like, let's say Rory who's averaging 185, 186. And then Rory says, okay, well, I'm going to swing at 190. I'm going to generate 190 ball speeds. And he's, you know, maybe he starts spraying it. Well, Rory's 190 ball speed is at such a high. Much a higher percentage of his maximum. Let's say Rory could get 200 ball speed. I don't know if he can. Let's say he can. Well, Bryson is can get like 220 ball speed. Like he, you know, like even if you brought down like he's you know in the world long drive. I think he had 218, 219. So let's say you go more standardized equipment. You know, he's definitely capable of with a regular driver 210. So for him to be playing at 190, you know, he's out there at 90 percent, right? Whereas if other players decide to swing at one ninety, they're probably at like ninety eight percent, you know, and that's that's why sometimes you say, "Well, I'm going to go speed." Did, didn't work for me. Well, maybe you didn't approach it right. It's a long term. It's a long term game.
2: I was just going to say lots of good stuff there, and it's interesting to hear your perspective on Rory because you know I think a lot of people took that as validation that speed training or chasing Bryson wasn't the right way to go, but very interesting stuff. We've talked about driving
1: and all that stuff. And I, I want to make sure we wrap up and are respectful of your time. But before, before we get to that, I also want to talk about putting because you've done some interesting studies on putting and love putting. I can't remember what study I found. It sent me down a rabbit hole a few years ago and I was reading, I read your study. I believe, I believe it was yours on uh, torque with putters. And I found that one. Extremely fascinating, and I changed some of my putting on the, because of reading that. And who knows whether my who knows re- whether my thesis on why I changed it was right. I switched. I tried out a torque free putter and enjoyed it for a time. And then I've I've messed around a little bit with a few other ones. Let's talk a little bit about your studies on putting and kind of what you found in that area. And I know there's a lot that you've done, et cetera. But if so, it's it's hard for me to ask a question that broad. But let. Let's, I'll, I'll try, I'll make it more specific. And let's say, hey, I'm here, I'm playing in a tournament in two weeks from now. What have your studies on putting kind of told me about some things maybe I should be paying attention to or thinking of? And then long term, if there's some things I should probably be working on or at least be mindful of, what have those kind of pointed me to as far as, hey, here's something you should think of you might not otherwise?
0: I would say accumulation of all my research has led to stack putting. So give that a try. And it's, that's a, that's a, the Coles Notes version. A lot of the mini tour guys I work with, that's all they do for putting practice, especially before tournament rounds. So some highlights, where you hit the ball in the face doesn't matter so much. It's not just about the physics of impact. You need to determine what is the variability that happens if someone's going to hit a bunch of putts. And if you look at, you know, an average high handicap putter, they don't miss the center of face enough for that to matter, you know. So, if you're doing drills where you're like, I have to hit it out of the center of the face, it's probably not giving you a lot of bang for your buck in terms of getting better putting. Path also does not matter. I can see guys that seek a ton of putts in there. You know, you could have path two degrees left, two degrees right. Again, same thing. The amount of variability you need in your path to have it make a difference Is really high. Uh, It's not. It's not the reason you're missing putts. Face angle now. If you want to, you know, set up a a gate to see if you're starting the ball in the right direction, the launching it. That's important, right? So being able to control the face angle, speed, I think is even more important than face angle. So being able to, you read the green, based on the read, you choose a particular speed. Are you able to execute that speed? green green reading is massive. it's probably explains you know forty to fifty percent of the differences between good and bad putters you know um it's not not the stroke, so do do a better job at figuring out how to read greens. What I just said can be summarized as if if you want to get better at those things, you need to spend more time hitting unique putts. if you're spending a lot of time going okay if, if i if, if I ask a miniature guy right, we did your you know, you use a golf metrics app by Mark Brody and we have your stats and it says that, okay, your putting's your Achilles heel. What did you do for putting practice? And they will describe like, well, how many unique putts did you hit in that session? You spend an hour putting and they'll be like eight. That's terrible. You know, you're not, you're not going to improve your speed control and you're not going to start to understand your ability to re-greens with eight unique putts. And also, you should focus on putts between four feet and seven feet. Those are by far the most important. But if you want to know what makes someone a better putter than someone else, it's putts in that range. Then you look at eight to twelve feet and then kind of twelve to seventeen. And then if kind of once you get over thirty feet, it doesn't really matter. Based on the frequency that you see these putts and on how much they contribute to differences in putting performance, it's just not worth practicing. Don't practice three feet and in. Don't practice over thirty feet. Hey, if you've got thirty hours a week to practice, Great. Focus a little bit on the lag putting, but if you have got an hour to focus on your putting, don't put it into those other areas. You want to get better at green reading, you want to get better at speed control. And to do those things, you better be seeing a whole lot of unique putts. Uh, The toe hang versus face balance. So there's certainly you can choose a putter if you have a systematic error or some miss that, that seems to crop up. There's a putter that you can choose that will help improve that. You could, you know, for example, if you're leaving the face open in impact, if you tend to push putts, then you probably want to try a more face balanced design. Putters that are toe hang tend to leave the face more open in impact. So that can be something like, hey, if, God, I tend, you know, that's my miss, you know, good, good, good push, good push, you know, or you pull putts then switch to a toe hang or try it, you know, that can be an easy thing to do. If you have two weeks to go before a tournament, this might not be enough time. But eighty percent of the people that go through my lab putt better heads-up putting, looking at the hole, and the, it relates to the things that we've just talked about. You know, what are the the four things that matter that are under control of the golfer? Where the ball hits in the face, the path, the speed, and the impact spot. You know, so if you look at the hole, you do tend to increase your variability around the face, but that doesn't really matter. But your speed control improves so much. That it actually completely washes it out and makes a much better, a much bigger influence on whether you make putts or not. So I did a study looking at heads up compared to heads-down putting on flat putts. Mm, didn't show any difference. As soon as I included break in a follow-up study, all of a sudden heads-up putting became way more important because speed becomes more important on breaking putts. And most putts have some level of break in them. You know, we're not playing on on flat greens. And you know, the there's lots of little things I had to say about, you know, heads of putting. You can't argue with the experimental findings. Someone comes in the lab, they're 45 years old. They've, you know, spent 35 years putting heads down. I give them a half hour. Here's, you know, the way you put heads up. Nothing changes. Set up the same way. Everything's the same. Only in, in before you pull the putter back, you're looking down at the ball, you're ready to pull the putter back. You kind of let your eyes trace down the launch direction of the ball you, you figure out that where that launch direction passes close to the hole, you stare at that spot and you think I'm just going to roll the ball over that spot. That's it. And so the experimental results speak for themselves. people the, the average person tends to put better heads so test it out for yourself you know give it a go and we've got this really cool feature in the stack putting app where you can tag sessions so if you're you know if you want to compare heads up to heads down, putter toe hang to a face balance you can go in you enter your putter type or the technique you're doing you can do 10 sessions one way 10 sessions the other way and we we run like a full on statistical analysis we'll tell you which way you you putt better with so that's you know um another reason to try stack putting i guess i think those are well i got a lot more to say but that's a reasonable highlight For real
1: that's perfect i think i'll I'll wrap us up in a second i think one other thing i had on that heads up putting i had read some about that and my question is I don't remember from the study is there a difference a based on handicap sum as far as how much that would help someone in like looking forward to professional players do you think they're too far down the rabbit hole of looking down that heads up would not for in generality might not produce immediate success maybe longer term or do you think that there's a possibility that some of them should more more of them should be doing that than already are.
0: Yeah, I think more should probably be doing it than already are. You know, when Spieth was putting his best, he did it you know, for whatever reason, he's, he stopped doing it. But you know, it can get complicated in the for a few reasons on the PGA tour. The, they're, they're probably closer together, so you need a lot of data to be like, Yeah, I put better heads up. Most of the guys are probably similar enough, heads up or heads down, where it's like, oh, I don't want to draw attention to myself. There's also a lot more movement around greens. So if guys aren't really able to focus in, you know, if you're putting heads up and in the distance, somebody's shotgunning a beer at, you know, <laughs> waste management, you're like, uh, that could throw you off, but it's really easy to test. And you sh- you know, I mean, I don't know why people don't just test it. You know, there's like, historically there's a lot of golfers that hey, use it in practice. Like Mike Weir's a good example of someone who you- used to use it as a, a practice drill for, and he he was like, yeah, kinda of putted really good, like, you know, doing that. Louis Oost putted lights out in the US Open, putting heads up, and then almost won the open, putting heads up. I think the year that Zach Johnson won. So there's been enough people, Johnny Miller won AT&T Pro Am putting heads up. So there've been enough guys that have done it where that, that obviously haven't spent years practicing it, where it's like, you know, it's not it's not, you know, not something that you, you probably shouldn't try, you know. But I think there's so much stigma around it that you know if you're having issues with your putting anyway, the last thing you want is a million people, you know, whoa, what's he doing there? You know, I don't know. Rich seems like he's really struggling. He's now looking at the hole. You know, like (laughs) probably don't need that in your life. I think some golfers. It it really what it comes down to is your ability to retain that distance in your mind. For most people, that decays exponentially. Probably for everybody, but you know, maybe, you know, if you look at really good putters, Aaron Baddeley is an example. He starts to putter back almost as soon as his head starts to come back to the ball. You you don't want to, you don't want that, that memory of the distance the ball has to go to, to decay in your mind, but that happens to everybody. But so if you're a golfer that has a really good ability to remember how far away the hole is, maybe you don't need to do it.
2: I remember a particular instance when I was a junior golfer and I was practicing on the putting green, just messing around. And I was like, you know, I'm going to look at the hole when I putt. And I was like, you know, I think I honestly thought I putted better while looking at the hole, and I probably did. But what drew me away from it was a concern that on longer putts, I wouldn't have a consistent strike in the center of the putter. Do you see this as a problem with heads up putting?
0: No, I mean, I putt heads up because every time I test myself in the lab, I'm better, and I like, I sink a lot of putts. And I'm like, whoa, that was out of the toe. You know, there's been lots of good research. Carlson and Nielsen did a study where it was like crazy amounts towards the heel and toe relative to what an average person would experience are like 1% error and rollout distance, you know, and like they're just, they're just, they're not enough. Even though you can feel it, it's not going to matter. And if you are at 60 feet and you hit it out of the toe, your ability to better judge the speed that you want that putter moving at is going to wash out any loss in speed because you hit it out of the toe. You know, there's lots of people that I see sixty footers with their head down, and they leave it twenty feet short, and 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 they think they nailed the putt. Right? Who was it at Waste Management and just put it in the water? Who
1: did that? I don't. I don't remember. I can't. I can't remember. But the the point stands. That that makes sense. And I think. That's perfect. I appreciate you brought a lot of information here for us and did a great job expounding on it, which is very helpful for us. Because one of the things, we like to know the answers to things, but we also like to know the why to things because that helps us really know things. And you brought a lot of that today. So we appreciate it. The last question we ask every guest is, if you could go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would that be? And then given your background Etc. We'd also ask you if you were telling just another junior golfer, just telling a junior golfer, just one thing. What would that be?
0: You know, I'd probably tell myself and this other kid the same thing. Is that um, the great thing about golf is that it's it's you and the course. You know, so it's it's tough to with team sports. You can be limited by the competition you're you're playing against. You know, it's a real thing. You know, if I decide I'm going to go out and try to get better at hockey, if I'm not playing against the best hockey players that I can, it's going to limit myself. There's, but with golf, you can use your, you know, your 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 own abilities as the, you know, what the goals you're trying to break. You know, so no matter where you are in the world as a junior golfer, Victor Hovland in Norway, you know, hitting it balls in an airport hangar uh, growing up, or Tony Fino whacking them into mattresses, you know, that's the message: is that doesn't have to be a limitation. Challenge yourself.
1: That's perfect. Well, if people are interested in reaching out to you, learning more about any of the things we talked about today, learning more about the stack, etc., finding you on social media, all that kind of stuff. What's the best way for someone to find you on social media and ask you more questions or anything of that nature?
0: Yeah, Twitter. Twitter's at Sasha McKenzie. I've got a ton of content on Twitter. If you just go scroll through my my, my previous tweets. I try my best to engage on Twitter. Vimeo, I've got a lot of videos. G- Google me, man. There's a ton of, you Google Sasha McKenzie golf, you could narrow it down with putting or speed or shafts or whatever. You'll find something interesting. And I- I'm putting uh, today, I'll, by the end of the day, I'll have at least four more videos on our FAQ. Really long form, kind of like this discussion we had here. I tend to go pretty in depth on our FAQ. So if you go to, they'll be all posted in questions that arise during training I'm on the stack website. So uh, things about stacking and accuracy, how to transfer speed to actual golf shots when you're hitting a ball. Ken, I'm actually posting a video later that uh, discusses what we talked about with does it influence, does it make your swing mechanics bad? So people can check those out on our FAQ page.
1: Well, perfect. Be sure to give Sasha a follow. And then if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please subscribe, leave us a rating. And if you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. That helps us get our message out to more people. If you're trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at the tournament code and on Twitter at tournament code. As always, we look forward to getting together with you and diving in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament golf.